Well, church family, there was about uh, eight or nine years ago, early on in my time as a student pastor, that I, um, I saw a post, and, and, and memory, memory doesn't serve me to remember if the post was Facebook or Instagram, but regardless, it was a picture on social media from another youth pastor in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area. And this picture had he and uh, some people from his staff and an outside guy, and the tagline in the picture was something along the lines of, uh, so grateful for, uh, for Stephen, always love strategy sessions. And that guy, guy's name wasn't Stephen. I'm just making that up. Uh, so don't go try to find. That's, the names have been changed to protect the innocent or guilty. I don't know. Um, but on behind them was a, was a whiteboard. And they, they had been jotting down all sorts of ministry things on this whiteboard. And, and there were four distinct categories on the whiteboard. And so, so for instance, one of them, the first category said targets. And it, it was names of high schools that were in their geographical region. And there, there's these other categories. And all of a sudden, you got down to the last category. And I, and I did a double, triple, quadruple take to make sure that it said what I thought it said. But this category said threats. Now, normally, if, if I wrote down a category of threats, I would probably start writing down various philosophies or various uh, movements of social media, things like that. This said threats. And underneath that heading was the names of other gospel-believing, Jesus-preaching churches. And it was one of these moments where this kind of competitive spirit that you hear about sometimes in ministry or, or perhaps even lurks under the surface, all of a sudden it was there apparent for all eyes to see. Now, if we want to get benefit of the doubt, perhaps they, they, it was in a kidding way, but there's nothing kidding about looking at other believers, other churches that are Jesus following, Bible preaching, gospel proclaiming people and churches and labeling them threats. There is a spirit of competition, of ambition, of rivalry inside of that that is inappropriate in the life of a follower of Christ. Amen. But here's the question. How is it that many churches have gotten there? And maybe the better question is, what do we need to be aware of so that we don't get there? And, and even bigger than that, what do we do if as a church or on a personal level, all of a sudden we find ourselves trapped amidst a sense of selfish ambition and rivalry in gospel ministry? Because as we will walk through today, I don't think it is as uncommon and shocking as perhaps maybe we think it is. So if you've got your Bibles, we're back in the book of Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up, we're actually going to read over the verses we looked at last week because all of this ties together. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, and, and listen to what it says. It says, now, Paul writing out of house arrest to the church says, now I want you to know, church, that my circumstances, my imprisonment, that's, that I remember at this point has been four years long. The greatest evangelist missionary of the first century has been behind bars for four years at this point. These circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. 
so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. He says, look, these circumstances of hardship, they've not stopped the gospel from moving forward. They've actually progressed it even further. One, because everyone around me knows what I'm actually in prison for. And two, look what he says, and that most of the church, most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So remember last week, Paul is really concerned that the church understand, hey, what looks like suffering, what looks like hardship, what is absolutely stopping and encroaching upon my, my public freedom is not actually stopping the gospel moving forward as only God can. It is propelling it forward. And one of the ways it's propelling it forward is that the church has risen up in Rome with a greater trust and confidence in God that is leading to a greater boldness in their verbally sharing the gospel. This is how we know the gospel is progressing forward. But look what comes out of this. Look what he says. Some, some of those proclaiming to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill. These latters do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, while the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking, imagining, supposing to cause me an internal distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I am rejoicing. So catch what Paul's saying here. He says, church in Philippi, he says, the, the church in Rome has seen my imprisonment. They're trusting in the Lord more. They are speaking the word with boldness. And, and those who are proclaiming the gospel, there, there's really two camps. One of these camps, one of these groups are driven, are motivated by a sense of envy and strife, by a sense of, of rivalry and selfish ambition. This other group is driven, motivated by, by goodwill, by, by agape love. And he says, this group that's, that's acting in, in rivalry, they're wanting to try to make me even more distressed. They're out there while I'm th thinking that while I'm chained up and, and no longer can, can freely proclaim, they're out there and, and, uh, and they're daily recruiting people to be part of the selfish Baptist church rather than the Paul Baptist church. And because I'm stuck in here and can't lead the Paul Baptist church, they think that this is causing some kind of distress. And Paul says, listen, he said, I'm not in the gospel ministry for my name, for my glory, for my usefulness. I'm in it for the proclamation of the gospel. And guess what? The joke's on them because why what they're doing is not correct. I am more than okay because lost men and women are hearing the gospel proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Amen. This is what Paul is describing and saying. It's, it's very simple. It, it seems a strange reality. It seems, in fact, some scholars even debate if this is even just a side note or how to process this. But the reality is Paul drives at a key and critical reality that we have to understand just like the Philippian church if we're going to be a gospel-driven church. 
If we are going to be a church driven by the gospel, then we have to be a church that is a gospel-proclaiming church. Do you notice that here in the text before we even look at the two groups? Listen, some to be sure are preaching Christ. The latter preach Christ out of love. The former proclaim Christ. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. There's at least four different references in these short few verses that reference the preaching of Christ, the proclamation of Christ. And by Christ, we mean the gospel message. The message that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus came, that he, that he lived, that he died according to the scriptures, that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, that, that he appeared to others, that he is ascended, and that he is returning. And this message of who Jesus is and what he has done, when responded to in repentance and faith by men and women, has the power to reconcile and restore us into a right relationship with God Amen. for all eternity. Rain or shine, good or bad, joys or sorrows, reconciles us securely for all eternity. He says, this is the message that is being preached, that is being proclaimed. That word preached means to announce, to herald, to make known important news publicly and loudly. The word proclaimed means to announce something broadly, to make known openly with wide distribution. Catch this. What he is saying is the, the message of Christ is being shared. And church family, understand, if we are going to be a church family driven by the gospel, not just saying we believe the gospel, but our belief in the gospel translates into a life driven and constrained by the gospel for the glory of God in and through the gospel, then we have to be a church that proclaims the gospel. And here's what that means. There's three realities that that's going to mean. Just as a quick reminder, we looked at this last week, and we're not going to stay here long, but as a quick reminder, if we're going to be a church that proclaims the gospel, then each one of us in here as an individual, has to understand that we are called to be gospel ministers to all the nations. Amen. We don't get a choice. The Great Commission is not the commission for the apostles. It's not the commission for the chosen select few. It is the Great Commission binding upon all of us. In fact, when Jesus called the first disciples, what was the call? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Church family, the call to be a missionary, the call to be an ambassador for the gospel of Christ, it is, it is in the basic call to follow Christ and know him. So what does that mean? It means if you're in this room and you're born again, saved by the grace of God, God's called you to be a missionary. It's not a matter of if or when, it's a matter of where and how. And if you're here because God's kept you here in Pflugerville or the greater area, it means because God's called you to be a missionary in Pflugerville in the greater area. Amen. It's binding upon all of us. So church family, do you see yourself as a disciple maker? Because if you think that you're not a disciple maker, then we've got a problem in how we view ourselves before the Lord because he's called us to be a disciple maker. Do we see our kids as, if they know the Lord, disciple makers? Because God has called every one of us to the gospel ministry as ambassadors of Christ. Not only this, but if we're going to acknowledge that we're all called to the gospel ministry, then it means we must actually verbally share the gospel. Amen. It means that, right, what, what, is, what does Romans 10 say? How can they believe in him whom they have not heard? How can they hear 
unless it is preached. How can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And then one verse later, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. See, church family, here's the reality. We cannot be a gospel-driven church if the gospel is simply something we say, well, we're gonna live it quietly, but never use our mouths to tell anybody about it. Understand, the good news is not good news if nobody hears it's good news. We must verbally proclaim the gospel. Now, here's what, I, what I'm not saying is, all right, everybody, next Sunday, we better all have our report card of the 100 people we went out and street witnessed to this week. Okay, what I am saying is we better be praying for open doors. We better be asking God, who is at least one person you have placed in the circle of influence in my life that I can be looking and and, and praying and looking towards sharing the gospel? Because most of us have somebody, a friend, a family member, a classmate, a teammate. The gospel must be shared verbally. It's why? When you come out to Harvest Festival this afternoon, we will have a moment where we share the gospel with everyone who's there. It's why I'm praying if you come out and you're working a booth, be sensitive to the Spirit. Who knows if you're working a booth and you have a parent new to town who says, why why are you doing this and who are you? Man, you can't set up a softball on a tee for a home run better than that. We must proclaim the gospel. But not only that, if we're going to really be a gospel-driven church, I just want to encourage us with this simple reality too. We have to define our success in the gospel not by how many people respond, but by how many people hear. And here's why I say this. Because you and I can no more make a person get saved than we can move the moon to another location. The only person who can save a sinner's heart, who can convict a heart and take the hearing of the gospel and lead a person to repentance and faith is the Holy Spirit. God is the only one who can save. Only God reaps. What does it say in Acts? Not they added to their number, not ambiguously their number was added to, God added to their number. Only God can save a lost heart. But we're called to sow and we're called to water. Right, isn't that the parable? Jesus says the gardener goes out, he plants the seed, he waters the seed, and it grows, but he knows not how it grows. Church family, you and I can't control who responds or doesn't respond, but we can absolutely control whether or not we are faithful to sow the seed. And if we define success by how many people respond, the danger is we will likely do one of two things with the gospel. We will either water it down so that more people respond, or we will put a pressure in manipulation on somebody to get them to pray a prayer that's not really reflective of a heart convicted by the Spirit. Both are wrong. So church family, understand, just by way of reminder, the first thing that we come to in this passage is the fact that if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we must be a gospel-proclaiming church, and that is on all of us, me and you, pastor, church, staff, doesn't matter what your title is in this, in this family, we are all called to be ambassadors of Christ. Amen. But as that, what's going to drive that ministry? 
What's going to drive that ministry? Well, we find two different groups here. Let's look at the first group. Look what it says in verse 15. Some preach Christ from envy and strife. Envy meaning a spite and a a resentment towards someone else. A desire not just to have what they have, but to have it and keep them from it. It is a spirit that, that, that bemoans the success of someone and that delights in someone's misfortune. Strife, an argumentative spirit, a spirit that desires conflict and, and, and uh, dissension. It says that they're driven by selfish ambition, an interesting little word meaning that the only reason they do what they do is for what they can get out of it. Says their reason for this, their ultimate desire is because there is a sense of rivalry with Paul and they want to cause Paul harm. And what does it come out? It comes out in their proclamation. Look at verse 18. Whether in pretense, pretense, a fictitious or a fictitious or mundane reason that is concocted in order to conceal the real reason. Here it's using the name of Christ and the gospel message as a cover or a mask for a personal and selfish. End. It means that the devotion that's being shown is but a farce, the true motive lying behind it. What does this mean about this group? I like the way one theologian put it. This group is going about the work of God in the spirit of the devil. But that's exactly what they're doing. They, they are going about, they are seeking to engage in gospel ministry. They are seeking to engage in the furtherance and the proclamation of the gospel, not out of a desire for the glory of God, not out of love, but, but out of a desire to build a kingdom for themselves and to be greater and better than Paul. That's, that's as much as we know. It doesn't give us more details of why that rivalry came up or, or, or what was the reason behind it. And honestly, we don't need the details because what Paul is describing is not so hard to believe because church family we need to understand that we can proclaim the right message we can engage in the right ministry and we can do it completely for our own glory for our own desires for our own end whether that's in competition with another or not and if we are going to be a gospel driven church church family we must not ever be motivated by a self-centered personal ambition Amen. it cannot exist. And because it's possible, we must remain vigilant. Let me just give you some simple examples I've thought of. of well, where is this possible? Well, let's talk, about when I, let's talk about professional ministers versus called ministers. I've seen many a man in ministerial pastoral staff who, what happens? He gets that first role in ministry. And he's going to get as big and successful as he can so he can use it as a stepping stone to the next and the next, and the next. And people will look at the ministry and go, look at the size, look how it's growing, look how good it is. But when you actually get down and discover the character of the man, it's only professional steps up the ladder to achieve whatever top rung he wants. Versus a called minister, you know what a called minister is? It doesn't matter if I know this is where God's gonna lead me for the rest of my life or not. This is the greatest place God could ever call me. Why? Because God called me, Amen. period. See it in ministers, pastors. We see it in how churches are compared to others. We see churches, example from earlier, we, we see churches, well, well, our church is the big church in town and we gotta stay the big church in town or, or our church is the big church in town 
And we're looking at this part of town where there's not a big church in town and our church is so great, why don't we go put a satellite campus there even though it's right next door to a local church that maybe we should have tried to partner with and help in cooperation. Or maybe it's not how big our church is. Maybe, maybe in sometimes when, when it's small and there's other biggers, we, we pride ourselves on, well, you know what? What we are is we're, we're, we're the, the most theologically in-depth church. Yeah, you can have all those access fluffy people. We, we're just going to be, we're gonna be the, the, the really smart church. We're going to be, we, we're absolutely certain every one of us. We're not only saved, but we're like the double saved. We're, we're, we're getting into the highest realm of heaven Side note, I'm not sure that there are higher realms of heaven. It's just heaven, by the way. It's not Dante's Inferno. This sense of, of competition, I have seen it play out before my eyes, but I've also seen the opposite. Where I came from amongst the college ministries and the churches there at Texas A&M University, uh, we knew which churches were preaching correct doctrine or not. But of those that were, that were truly preaching Jesus, there was such a sense of camaraderie. All of us as college pastors were each other's friends. We were our prayer warriors for each other. We met up regularly, personally, in groups. We partnered on things to do because what all of us realize is not one of our college ministries could possibly reach the 80,000 students that are there at A&M. So there was no place for selfish ambition and rivalry but I'll also tell you this, do you know how many times we have spoken with even big names that you would know who, who have come to events at A&M, and when they hear, how can you do this, and they hear about the kind of cooperative spirit, they go, I've never seen that anywhere in America. Maybe it's not church versus church. Maybe it's how big my grow group is, or let's just call it what most of us know by. How big is my Sunday school class compared to that person's Sunday school class? Why is their group growing and my group not? And all of a sudden we become this sense of rivalry or who's coming to this small group Bible study versus that small group Bible study. And instead of maybe learning from those who do something well with the right motives, and instead of finding our value in Christ, we are finding all of a sudden our value in the size and scope of this ministry we've concocted for ourselves. And a sense of rivalry now exists. I've seen that play out at many a church. Or maybe this is what is... Today, you know, we live in an interesting time, even though uh, the, the acceptance of the Christian faith in America has changed. We do still live in an interesting day because by and large, if you can gain a foothold, you can become a celebrity for being a Christian in our country. If you know how to market yourself on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, using different reels. I see this with, with the younger generation. We want to change the world. We want to do something big for God. And if we haven't done it by 25, then our whole life is a wash. And so we concoct these things, and all of a sudden, we're, we have these major platforms where we are, we are viewed as spiritual authority, even though we may not have even had enough time to read through the whole Bible yet in our lives. And by not enough time, we just haven't taken the time. Or maybe it's because of a bigger, you know, this church has this podcast and this, and all of a sudden you get these mega celebrity, the celebrity pastors, the celebrity ministers, the celebrity Bible study writers. The reality is we live in a time when your platform and this idea, I see it all the time. So maybe if you're a little older and you go, I would, TikTok, I know what a TikTok is, but what is TikTok? That's okay. Because some of you are younger and you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
where all of a sudden this idea that I've got to do something great for Jesus, this ministry, all of a sudden is not driven in reality by the glory of God and love for people. It's driven by how great and how grand my platform is and what I have to do to sustain it. You see, envy, strife, selfish ambition, pretense, it can come out in all sorts of ways. So what do we do if we discover that? Let me just give you real simple. If we discover in our hearts today or at any point that there is a selfish ambition driving the ministry we're engaged in, one, go confess and repent to the Lord. Two, if there's a sense of envy and rivalry, if there's for some reason, if there's a Sunday school class in, in our church family and another Sunday school class who are pitted against each other, and I'm not saying that, by the way, because I know anything. I don't know anything. But if that were true, you know what you also ought to do? Today's a great day to go walk up, apologize, and ask for forgiveness according to the Lord. And to reset. You know what we also have to do, church family? If God moves in us and God moves through us and God adds to our number, we will have to be on the lookout. It is a fine line to switch from our motivation being the glory of God to the motivation being the glory of ourselves. We will have to mutually be watching out for each other as a church family. But ultimately, what do we do? How do we stay away from this attitude? Well, I'll give you it rolls right in the next thing. We rejoice and allow ourselves to be driven by the correct motivation. Look at the other group here in the text. But some from goodwill, from good pleasure, from delight, from a spirit of genuineness, they do it out of love. That's that word, out of agape, out of unconditional love, out of the love of God. They proclaim the gospel. And, and what, what does it look like? Uh, and, and the other, don't, from, don't proclaim from pure motives, but if we're proclaiming out of love, the contrast there, say this group is proclaiming from pure motives, from true motives, from genuine, which is why when they proclaim verse 18, they do so in truth. You see, here you have a group proclaiming the gospel, and the thing that is driving them it's not their glory. It's not their platform. It's not the non-Paul Baptist church that they want to form and create. What is driving them, one, there is a goodwill. There is an affection towards Paul. Paul says there in the text in verse, seven, uh, verse 16 that these people understand that God has appointed him for the defense of the gospel. They understand God's will in Paul's life, and they are out proclaiming the gospel out of love. Church family, if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we have to be a church that is driven by the agape of God, the love of God. Why do we do Harvest Festival? It better be not because we've got to have a great Harvest Festival compared to the church down the road. It better be because the love of God. The love of God. What does this mean? The love of God meaning you and I, if we are in Christ, we have experienced on a personal level, we experience daily the unconditional love of God, the love of God that placed a value on our lives, not because we deserved it according to 1 John 4.10. Not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice, to pay the price you and I could not pay, an eternal price, a price. You want to know what the price that Jesus paid for you and I is? Literally, theologically, the price is hell. Because that's what hell is. It's the place of the eternal justice of God poured out on sin. And why did God send his son to do that? For God so loved the world. If we have experienced that love, know that love, then that love has to constrain us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. It must constrain us, compel us, drive us. 
And because we know his love, what does 1 John 4 also say? We love because he first loved us. So why do we proclaim? We proclaim out of love for the Lord. Out of love for the Lord, God's command, his commission upon our life is to go and make disciples. There ought to be a love. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Obey my commands. So let's ask this question. If we evaluated our love for Jesus on our faithfulness to be open to praying for and attempting to share the gospel, how high would our love rank? Because if we love him, we will obey his commands. There should be a love for God that, is, that drives our gospel proclamation. There should be a love for each other. You see this specifically in the text is what we see. They love Paul. The church in Rome, at least this portion, loves Paul. They are partnering together. They are laboring side by side, a theme that he'll bring out more here in a few weeks for us. There is a love for each other that sees each other both inside our church family and even when we think about partnering with other churches that are correct and believe the truth. Because I got news for you and I here too. There ought to be a love for the other true gospel preaching, Jesus believing, Bible standing churches in the area. You know why? Because there's not a one of our churches that are big enough to handle the amount of lost people that need to hear Jesus. And should they come to faith in Christ, there's not a one of our churches big enough to handle them and disciple them all. We need each other. But not only this, love for God, love, the love of God in our lives Responding back in love for God, love for each other. But how about this? Love for the world. Amen. Let me just ask a simple question. When you look out today, when I look out today and we see the state of our world, and we see individuals who are actively, passionately, vehemently promoting anti-Christ agendas, is there any compassion and love that wells up in our hearts for them or is it only anger frustration and annoyance at what if they get their way how that could cause discomfort in my safe little kingdom on this planet because i got news for all of us jesus loves every politician who disagrees with him just as much as he loves you and i Jesus died just as much for every warlord who is savage just as much as he died for you and I. And Jesus, when he looked out on the masses of crowds who were lost, who were against him, who were by nature children of wrath, what was his response? His response was he was filled with compassion because he saw sheep without a shepherd. When we look out at the lost world raging today, they are only acting and living out the way that is consistent with who they are, enslaved and in bondage to sin. And the only reason you or I are not is because the Holy Spirit convicted our heart, someone shared the gospel, and Jesus saved us just like he promised he would. And his love for the world better also be our love for the world. We must be driven to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors next door, down the street, to our coworkers, to our teammates, to our classmates, to our family members in good standing or estranged. The driving force behind it ought not to be to win an argument. It ought not to be to get what we want. It ought to be the love of God in us and through us for that person. That must be the driving point of our gospel proclamation. 
Do we look out and like Christ say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And by the way, the first martyr, Stephen, what was his dying words? As he was wrongfully being stoned by those who hated Christ, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And who stood there, supportive of all of it? Who would have heard those words and seen his final breath? A hot-headed, intelligent, anti-Christ named Saul who would encounter Christ, be forgiven by Christ, change his name to Paul, who now writes this letter. And he writes this letter calling us to have not just to be driven by the gospel, but to be driven for the right reasons for the gospel. And he says this here at the very end. He says, in light of this, in light of the fact that the reality is we can be driven by self-centered ends or driven by, driven by the right motivation, the love of God. In light of this, what is, he, what is he to say? He says, I rejoice because in Paul's eyes, even though there is a group of people out there doing the right ministry, proclaiming the right gospel, these aren't false gospel preachers. These aren't wolves in sheep clothing. These are true Christians but who are driven by, by, by a spirit of self. Paul sitting in prison, he doesn't give them a pass. He's not saying what they're doing is okay. But he says, my own personal insults are not greater than rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is being heard. He says, on this I rejoice. I am rejoicing. Now, Church family, you know what it means to rejoice? It doesn't mean to just feel joy. It actually means to, as, as an act of intentional will, to contemplate who God is and, and what God has done, to contemplate who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And as I turn my mind and contemplate the truth of who he is and what he's done, that contemplation, that meditation springs up and produces joy in me. That is what it means to rejoice. So if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we must rejoice in the progress and proclamation of the gospel in spite of personal insults and regardless of our appointed role. And here's what we mean by that. If you seek to engage in ministry in the church world, I have some really hard, sad news for all of us. Somebody's gonna view you as a rival and you're gonna get hurt at some point. And church hurts are always the hardest hurts to come past. Because when the people of God don't act like the people of God, it's a far deeper wound. There are going to be people who, who compete. There are going to be people who say things. There are going to be people who spread rumors, who, who cause gossip because they don't like you. They don't like the way you're doing something. They're, they're threatened by your sense of ministry. And in no way are those actions ever okay. How do I know Paul's not okay with the way these people are acting? Because in Romans 2 and in Galatians 5, he goes off on both churches for acting this way. But he's not writing to this group of individuals. He's writing a church in Philippi who is seeing the kind of struggle that Paul's facing in Rome start to come their way, living in a colony of Rome. He's writing a church in Philippi that has had a passion for the gospel, but he wants to see that passion grow and light even more. He's writing to a church where he is praying that their love would abound more and more, and now he's calling them to proclaim the gospel out of love. And he's calling them that even when they are personally insulted, they are to rejoice. What are we rejoicing in when we face personal insult? Well, here's what we're rejoicing in. We're rejoicing in this, 
the power of the gospel is not limited by the person who shares it. I give you a crazy old Baptist story. If you do your Baptist history, there's a pastor in the, in the colonies. Uh, his dad was a pastor back in, in England, and he, uh, he came to America, swindler, not saved, but he was really eloquent. Got a church to hire him. Got up there on the first Sunday and started preaching a gospel sermon. He'd heard his dad preach and stopped the sermon in the middle and said, church, I got to stop because I'm not actually saved and gave his life to the Lord in the middle of his sermon. It's the only recorded story of someone who preached his own sermon to lead himself to Christ. (laughs) But it illustrates the point. What is Paul proclaiming it? We see this with Jonah. Jonah has no desire to see Nineveh saved, yet through a terrible half-hearted proclamation of the Lord's mercy, the whole city responds. The power of the gospel is not in the proclaimer of the gospel. It's in the gospel itself. It's that fact that it's the power of God to salvation. We can rejoice even when we see ministry being done for the wrong reasons. We don't give it a pass. If we have the opportunity to speak into that, we speak into that. But we rejoice because even our own self-centeredness won't get in the way of God's gospel doing what only God's gospel can do. Because that is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Not only that, do we rejoice in the face of personal insult, but there's this tiny little last part we have to notice as we come to the end. We rejoice even in our appointed role. Do you see that in the text? Look with me here verse in, in, in verse 16. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. That word appointed, it's a word meaning to set. It's a word that actually is a military word where someone is under orders from their commander to remain firm and in a place. What does that mean for Paul? It means Paul's imprisonment is not by happens chance. Paul's, Paul's place of hardship and suffering is not because the world got a jump on him. It is because God and God's plan and purpose for his life has called Paul to the role of defender of the faith and has placed Paul in a place where he can do that on a stage he never could have gotten to otherwise. So church family, here's what this means for you and I. If we're gonna be a gospel-driven church, that starts with each one of us individually, but here's what this also means. Not all of us have the same role in the mission of God. What I mean by role, there are some of us that God may elevate to a greater prominence. But I'll tell you this, for every Billy Graham there is, there has been a million more faithful, nameless servants of Jesus Christ who will be honored just as greatly because they were faithful. There are different roles. God will elevate some of us. God will keep some of us in anonymity. There are roles that tie to seasons. For some of you, you go, hey, I I am in the same boat that we're navigating now as a family. I am a stay-at-home mom with kids. It's really hard to get out. It's not glorious. Guess what? You can absolutely be an ambassador for Christ in that role because you've got children who need to see and hear the gospel on a daily basis. And that role is just as every much valuable as the person who's working every day in the workplace surrounded by opportunities and you're hearing stories of God moving. You see, God calls us and appoints us to different roles in different places at different times in order to be a part of his gospel mission. Some of those roles may mean that we suffer and walk through hardship, but we must rejoice. Because if God has called us to a specific place and a specific role, then our job is not to fight that role. It is to submit and honor and be about his mission in that role. 
my grandfather tells the story. And I can't remember, maybe he shared it in here. I've, I've heard him share it so many times, I, I'm not sure. But in one of the early churches he pastored in, small town country church, he went and visited every church member. And the last church member he went and visited, he was very frightened to do so because he was a young man and, and, and he, um, this church member was bedbound, could not leave the house, could not leave the bed. He was very intimidated by that. So he went over and, and quickly he was ashamed at the intimidation because of just the sweetness and the preciousness of this lady. And this lady made a comment to him. She said, Brother Jimmy, I will never hear you preach a single sermon. Because this is in the days before podcast and all the sermons being radio televised. Remember, this is a small town, Texas. She said, I will never hear you preach a single sermon. But I want you to know every morning you get up there to preach, I am here and I am praying for you. I am praying for God to fill you and I am praying for God to move through you. And even though my grandfather was only there about a year and a half, the last Sunday he was there, that small town church saw more students come to faith in Christ than they'd ever seen in its history. And Papa will tell you it ties back to that bedridden, precious woman who was faithful even in her role to be about the mission of God out of love for God, for the glory of God. Church family, if we're gonna be a gospel-driven church, we better not be driven by our own glory, but by his love. And if we're gonna be driven by his love, it means we will rejoice regardless of personal insult. It means we will rejoice whether our role is great or seemingly little. We will rejoice because God is on the move and he is not done. Let's pray. Father, praise you that you are on the move. You are not done. You're not done with me. You're not done. When I look out and I see every set of eyes, there's no one in this room whose life you are finished with. God, in fact, if you've left every one of us here, if we are your child and we are not with you in heaven, it is because you are not finished in us and through us. Father, the fact that we are here as First Baptist Church Pflugerville, as a church family, is because you are not done in us and through us. And Father, we earnestly just cry out that you would, we'll echo the prayer from several weeks ago, that you would cause our love to abound more and more. That we would know the roles that you have appointed to, whether, whether it is for a, a permanent or whether it is for a season, and that in those roles, Father, we would rejoice and we would be about your mission. We would be about proclaiming the gospel. And we would do it because, Lord, we understand and we are constrained by your love. We would do it out of love for you. We would do it in love with one another. And we would do it out of a deep sense of brokenness and love for the world who desperately needs you and whose only hope is to respond to you if they hear the gospel. So I don't know if there's someone in this room today who hasn't responded to the gospel. May they hear clearly you are their only hope. Holy Spirit, as you move in our hearts, find us open to respond. It's in your name I pray, Jesus.